Welcome to Cerebrona. I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia. And this is episode 11. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. In our current events segment, we'll be talking about the case Garza versus Hagren, which came about when the federal government tried to block an unaccompanied minor who was detained access to an abortion. For deep thoughts, we're going to dive into Eduardo Galeano's Las Venas Abiertas de América Latina, a.k.a. Open Veins of Latin America, a book we've absolutely fallen in love with, and that's all about the exploitation of Latin America. For our case segment, we'll get into Juan versus INS, a case dealing with whether Congress's requirements for a citizen father to prove paternity was sex discrimination since the mother didn't have them, too. But before we start, I just wanted to say congratulations, Yvette, on starting on finishing the MPRE. How do you feel? I feel good. I'm glad that I finally got that over with. It was this like cloud over my head for a few weeks, and um, the testing site was really stressful. People were freaking out, but um, it's in the past. It's done. I'm happy. It's so sad to see that there's like more exams that we have to do besides the bar. But whatever, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. Yeah. How are you? Uh, good. A little overworked. I haven't been sleeping much these last few days. Um, probably from poor life decisions as well as a lot of work. Um, but so I'm hanging in there just trying to get through, get through today. Yeah. I feel you on that one too. But I am glad about how this current event resulted because I was tracking it for a while. Um, so now let's start, let's back up. Mm -hmm. All right. So who is this undocumented teen who we're talking about? So in all of the court documents, she's referred to as Jane Doe, which happens frequently if someone's a minor, if there's another reason why the person's identity should be kept hidden or be good to keep hidden. Um, so this was a girl from El Salvador who came here by herself, crossed the border by herself. Um, she's 17 years old. And um, in interviews, she's talked about how she wants to go to medical school or nursing school in the future. Do we know she's from El Salvador? Because I just saw that she was from Central America, but I didn't see anything. I'm pretty sure she's from El Salvador. Um, okay. I I just saw references to Central America, but that's why I asked. I think it was because then I, I like, I don't know why I would have gone to look for... Yeah, no, I know what you Salvadorian mean. Salvadorian <laughs> law in particular, but... No, okay. Yeah, um, I just wasn't sure. So when she got here, and again, we'll be referring to her as Jane Doe just because we don't know her actual name. But when she arrived to the United States and was detained, she got a medical exam and she found out she was pregnant. So she didn't know she was pregnant until she got here. So she found out she, and she was being detained by Border Patrol. And so she wanted to get an abortion and, and you know, started the process. So the lawsuit, Garza v. Hargren, came about because her lawyers sought injunctive relief to prevent the federal government from continuing to block her access to abortion because they weren't letting her get an abortion. And if there was also, the lawyers were also asking for a preliminary injunction to prohibit the federal government from blo blocking access to abortions for a class of other similarly situated pregnant unaccompanied mi immigrant minors because this isn't like a one-time occurrence this is something the federal government has been like repeatedly doing and so like that's what this whole lawsuit is about 
Yeah, and this came about because actually this policy of not allowing unaccompanied minors to seek abortion is a new Trump policy. Um, and the new policy specifically states that an unaccompanied minor who's seeking an abortion needs approval from ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is the office that's in charge of dealing with minors who have um, crossed the border. And apparently this person, Scott Lloyd, is vehemently anti-abortion. I know. This is so... Uh, like, he's the head of this office, and he's just, like, very anti-abortion. And then... Oh, and he has to... He's the one that gets to decide yeah. whether um, this unaccompanied minor who he knows nothing about other than they've immigrated can get an abortion like that. Ugh. Uh, we should also note... In case anybody's wondering, Jane Doe, she raised outside funds to pay for the abortion. So mm -hmm. by at no point in time was this going to be like the government paying for this abortion. So just to be clear. Yeah. Oh, also I looked it up and I guess they don't disclose what country she's from. Just that she's from Central America, probably for privacy reasons. Um, but I just, I don't know, for some reason I thought that she was from El Salvador and then... She might be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like there's a possibility that she is and... Um, I wanted to bring that up because El Salvador has really strict abortion laws, like any kind of abortion, regardless of the context, whether it was caused, whether or not the pregnancy was a byproduct of sexual assault, or if not having the abortion might mean that the um, the woman who's pregnant will die. It doesn't matter. Um, it's all criminalized. And recently, a woman whose child died from stillbirth uh, was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Um, so it just... If, you know, there is a possibility that she's from Salvador, or, like, I think the other Central American countries also don't have great reproductive right policies, but I just wanted to bring that up specifically because it's something that I know about because my family's Salvadorian, and it really, really bothers me. Yeah, no, that's a good point to prove. Uh, just to, like, highlight all the ways women's bodies are controlled mm -hmm. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit of history on this case, because it's... Yvette, like I like when we were talking earlier, I was just like, oh god, this procedural history is so tangled, like all the different things. <laughs> yeah. And I but I really liked your point of that this is all the hoops the federal government jumped through to try to get her to not be able to have an abortion. Yeah. So <laughs> bear with us as we go through all the steps because it is a little confusing. So the first thing was October 18th, 2017. So the U.S. District Court for D.C. granted temporary restraining order that prohibited the federal government from interfering with Jane Doe's access to her abortion provider. So that was because, like, Jane Doe was trying to get an abortion. The like federal government wasn't letting her. And so and the lawyers, like, sought this action, right, to, like, get them to stop. Yeah. And this is all very time sensitive because of a Texas law that um, outlaws abortion after 20 weeks. And Jane Doe was, like, at... I mean, by the end of the proceeding, she was at 15 weeks, but either way, like when all this was going on, there was a timetable running within which she needed to get an abortion. Also, like, <laughs> it's just, there is more risk to the woman the later it gets, too. So yeah. Yeah. it's just like, this is unnecessarily putting her at risk. Yeah. So then, okay. So that was October 18th. On October 20th, the federal government sought an emergency stay of the order from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. And so the court heard oral argument on the 20th. So the U.S. District Court said, okay, federal government, you can't do this. And so the federal government was like, we're going to appeal that case to the higher court. And so, and that court was like, yeah, we're going to give you, like, put the or other court's order on pause while um, we figure this out. And so the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals 
they set aside key parts of the temporary restraining order and they sent back the case to the district court to see if Jane Doe could find a sponsor so that the Office of Refugee Resettlement could transfer the custody, just transfer her custody over. But like getting a sponsor is actually a complex, like multi-step process that probably would not have been completed on this timeline. Mm-hmm. So that's like kind of, it was like setting them up to fail. Okay. And then on October 22nd, two days later, the ACLU, which was like handling this case, they petitioned all 10 judges of the DC circuit to rehear the case. And on October 24th, the DC circuit court of appeals overruled like the smaller panel. So it overruled itself basically Mm -hmm. that like, and said that the government's request to like stop the restraining order from going forward was like denied. And so on October 25th at like 4 a.m. in the morning, Jane Doe received an abortion. Finally, she was able to have that access. The, so the, the Office of Refugee Resettlement's policy um, not only prohibits young women from accessing abortions, but it also requires them to meet with an anti-abortion staff at, an, at a human health services approved site. Which is coded language. Yeah, so <laughs> that's actually, it's just like an anti-abortion crisis pregnancy center where people try to persuade you not to get an abortion. We thought it was important to highlight this because of how deep the state's interference was in this young woman's decision to terminate her pregnancy. The federal officials forced her to have a medically unnecessary sonogram against her will. And like we mentioned earlier, I'm not sure if this happened in this specific case. um, That wasn't in any of the articles that we read, but um, Scott Lloyd, who heads the Office of Refugee Resettlement, who's this person who's really anti-abortion, has apparently in other cases personally intervened and gone and tried to lobby these young women to not have abortions but that's not even the worst of it in my opinion like so one thing that really upset me was to find out that like orr officials so like federal government officials contacted jane doe's mother in her home country to tell her about her pregnancy even though jane doe did not want her to know about her pregnancy and they were trying to force her to tell her mom that she was trying to get an abortion and there's so many reasons why someone would not want to tell their parents that they are pregnant or get an abortion. Yeah. But in this specific case, so Jane Doe had actually suffered abuse at the hands of her parents and her parents had been physically abusive to an older sister who became pregnant. So there's like plenty of good reasons why the federal government should not be calling someone's mom to tell them about this. And this yeah. isn't like uncommon. So there's like... Ugh. So there was an, an email that the ACLU pointed to that, like, one of these federal government officials from ORR emailed their staff, ordering them to, like, notify a girl's, like, pregnant uh, parents of her of the abortion, even though the minor had obtained, like, a judicial order to prevent her parents from learning of the decision. So it's just, like, all these people who are like, oh, the rule of law is so important. Like, oh, this mm-hmm. is the rules. This is what I'm supposed to do. They don't care when they don't want to care. Yeah, also, I think we should think about how violent ORR is being with this policy because ORR is, um, or the I guess the DOJ more broadly, is trying to deport Jane Doe. Like, that is their goal, is to deport Jane Doe. And so if they contacted her parents about this abortion and even, like, you know, with this evidence that they should know about um, her suffering abuse at the hands of her parents, that's that's really sick to 
um, it's like, not only are you enacting violence by deporting Jane Doe, you're also ensuring that she's going to be in basically guaranteed to be in a really violent situation once she gets deported. Yeah. And it's like, you know, with like now, if they got their way with a child, you know, like yeah. we're going to deport yeah. you and with this child that we forced you to have, like, yeah, actually, how much do they really care about this child if they're trying to send Jane Doe and child that has not been born's fetus back to El Salvador where like they're really likely to face serious violence? I, I think that that's important to point out because I just don't really buy the fact that they really care about life and find it sacred when they disrespect it in so many other ways. Yeah, and what I found... I guess the comedic relief in all of this, I found to be like Texas state attorney general because oh. it could. Okay. So it's kind of shitty that all this was happening in Texas because Texas has like particularly stringent laws on abortion and you have to go like speak to people who are going to try to convince you to not get one and all this other stuff. And you have like the deadlines and whatnot. But <laughs> do you want to share the Texas attorney general's uh, comments? Yeah. He was just saying that, um, he, all this alarmist rhetoric about how this ruling not only cost a life, but also that it might cause many other people to enter the U.S. seeking abortions, which is like a pretty common argument that Republicans make and they really heighten fears around border security by claiming that like if we give undocumented immigrants any kind of benefits then it's just going to motivate everybody else to come flooding into the U.S. But that's just like a fundamentally wrong way of looking at immigration because the reasons why people choose to come to the U.S. are like I think more more about the conditions in their home countries than anything that's occurring in the U.S. Like I don't think that a more generous social welfare state is really going to impact migration that much because the reasons why people are leaving are because they have a really high likelihood of death in their home country and they feel like you know the possibility of them dying or being hurt along their journey on the border is less than the possibility of them dying at home like those are the kinds of calculations that people are making not like oh i wonder if the u.s has a more generous social welfare state than in my home country you know like people aren't as obsessed with the u.s as like, republicans would have you think people come here because they have they're dealing with serious issues back home yeah i i just thought it was so funny because this like texas attorney general which has like nothing to do with this case is just out <laughs> here being all worried like texas will not become a sanctuary state for abortions and it's just like oh my god i hope he's losing sleep over this because like that's so <laughs> ridiculous uh sadly i don't think it's the type of person to lose sleep over any of the shit that he does <laughs> but um i think also it's important we want to talk about this because the larger issue of well cynthia mentioned this is a class action and so the larger issue of the legal the legality of the federal government blocking an undocumented teen from getting an abortion is still being argued and this is kind of a big question that comes up every so often that really hasn't been answered clearly um, about the extent to which constitutional rights apply to undocumented people. These questions are very much still up in the air. Um, you know, like we talked about Plyler v. Doe. We did talk about Plyler mm -hmm. v. Doe. Yeah. Where you can't, you know, which rule that you can't keep undocumented children out of school. A ruling that was made even though the right to an education isn't like a guaranteed protected constitutional right. And then also you can't violate an undocumented person's Fourth Amendment rights when searching them or arresting them. Um, but then there's, so it seems like there's room to expand that, but other people like, um, the dissenting 
D.C. court judge, have said that granting these rights erodes the distinction between a citizen and a non-citizen. So um, these are important questions that um, will have an impact on how undocumented people can navigate life in the U.S. I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> that just... Was there anything else that we wanted to say about this? Uh, oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so the last thing we wanted to mention is that the federal government is trying to get, like, the ACLU lawyers have some sort of punishment for yeah. having been what they consider shady, <laughs> but what I consider strategic and smart and necessary. Yeah. Uh, so the ACLU, in their original brief, they wrote that um, Jane Doe was going to receive her abortion on October 26th. But the reason for that was that her original doctor was thought to be unavailable until then, but actually they were available on the 25th. So basically, as soon as the Court of Appeals allowed for the abortion to occur, the ACLU, like, um, and all helping arranged for Jane Doe to have her abortion. And so the, and I guess um, the DOJ was planning on appealing up to the Supreme Court to have the Supreme Court grant certiorari on the issue. Um, but I guess because they thought they had an extra day, they didn't do it. And so now they're claiming that the ACLU engaged in misconduct for writing the wrong date on the brief. Um, and I thought the ACLU response was really awesome, which is just like the fact that you didn't file the Supreme Court brief earlier asking for granting cert is your fault, not ours. And I feel like the DOJ doing this is like borderline harassment of the lawyers. Like... I wonder how long it took for the DOJ lawyer to even come up with that argument. They must have been like pouring through the documents being like, what can we say that can prove that they engage in misconduct? Yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to note before we end this case. So I actually, the first time I heard about this case was I was at a like weekend clinic in San Jose doing, um, helping with the uh, immigrant consultations. And in my uh, one of my classmates that went with me and told me about this case was just like this is where it starts like the eroding of rights like begins with mm. people who are most vulnerable mm -hmm. and who get paid like who people pay less attention to mm -hmm. and I think that's so t that's so true and that's so right and it's important that like this has become a national issue because it's easy to take away the rights from like populations who are vulnerable who are in detention centers who don't have a lot of access to the media so it's just one of those things where we have to do our work and to stay informed and to make sure these and care about these these issues when they happen yeah i think that's great okay so eduardo galeanos las venas abiertas de america latina do you want to give the background yvette sure um I guess the background to the background is that Cynthia and I are taking a class on Latin America together in the law school, and we had to read it for that class. So that's how we both came upon this book. I had heard about it, and it was on my to-do, or it was on my to-read list, so I'm really happy I got to read it, finally. It was written by Uruguayan journalist Eduardo Galeano. It was published in 1971, which was around the time of the Uruguayan military dictatorship takeover. Um, it analyzes the history of the Americas beginning from colonization to 1971 when it was published, and it outlines Europeans and the United States pillaging of raw materials of Latin America for their own benefit. It's a book that's garnered really strong reactions from different sides of the political spectrum. A lot of leftists treat it as their Bible. It's like a book that a lot of that a lot of people say has like opened their eyes to the extent to which Latin America is has been exploited. Um, and then there's other people who are advocates of the free market who have dismissingly referred to the ideology of it, basically by saying that you can sum it up as we're poor and it's their fault. 
That's so rude. Uh, yeah. Also, like the people that said that were were from I think I forget which country specifically, but they're like people who live in Latin America. But that's not surprising, <laughs> right? When you look at like Latin America through this lens of people who consider this, themselves as like from purely European heritage and everyone else, like the ruling class likes to keep themselves in power. And like even Guadiano talks about how much they they try to keep like Europe in control because it benefited them yeah no that's true and there i don't know the people who believe in the free market i feel like unconditionally believe in it even i i but ultimately because it benefits them like i've never heard of well (laughs) (laughs) people ascribe to the free market ideology for different reasons usually because it benefits them just leave it at that but the book has had really strong reaction um like we said it's was banned in chile uruguay and, and argentina all countries, all of which had military dictatorships. Um, so it's just, it's a really controversial book. Oh, the last thing that's relevant about the background is that um, shortly after it was published, that's when the U.S.-backed Uruguayan military dictatorship took over and Galeano was actually forced into exile. Something that I thought was interesting about Uruguay um, was that it was previous to 1971, a country that didn't really interest colonial powers that much. It didn't have that many raw materials that they were interested in extracting, and so it was left alone for a long period of time. And as a result, it developed a strong national economy and a democracy. Um, but the issue was that it was near other countries that the U.S. wanted to control, like Chile and Argentina. And so the U.S. didn't want them to be influenced by their quote-unquote socialist ideas because they were, like, Uruguay was um, engaging in some type of, like, redistributive policies. Um, So then that's why the U.S. intervened, which, you know, I think was really sad because it had one of the longest and best-functioning democracies up until that point. And I think one of the points that the book brings up that really resonates with me is how quickly the U.S. intervenes anytime any kind of leftist government comes to power. That's what happened with the Salvadorian Civil War and that's the reason that my parents had to come to the U.S. in the first place, is that they were threatened by the leftist government that the people of El Salvador voted for. Yeah. If you, uh, you can read it in Spanish, and yeah. our professor recommends reading it in Spanish, but if you do read it in English, I ended up buying both books, because yeah. I started reading it in Spanish, but wasn't reading quickly enough. Yeah. So I got the English version, and the English version has a foreword by Isabel Allende, mm-hmm. which I thought was really neat. And do you want to say the know about her (laughs) oh yeah she said that um after the chilean um coup she had to pack up her stuff really quickly so she could only take a few things and one of them was this book like that's how important it was to her so i just wanted to talk a little bit before we get into the book and what we learned from it was like why we chose this for deep thoughts and so i know personally i really wanted to talk about this book because like you said yvette like it really did feel like an like eye-opening like oh wow like I didn't know all this history and it's it's a long book it's not like ridiculously long but it's a long book but it's so like you just are reading through it and I wish I could have spent like a month on every chapter Mm -hmm. because there's so much rich information and it's so important I feel like it's like we've talked before about how knowing your history is power like Mm -hmm. this is a book where I like 100% believe that's true where it's like this all this information that we've never had access to that like the U.S. tries to manipulate into a different story or just completely erase like it's all right here and like he has he's very specific he like Mm -hmm. did his research it's all very well thought out and Mm -hmm. it's just like you can't keep lying to me you can't keep Mm -hmm. like feeling like feeding me this these false narratives Mm -hmm. so it's like 
just this book is important. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the image of the open veins and what that means to you and like why you were so moved by it? Yeah. So <laughs> it was actually my dad who like I like I don't think much about titles sometimes. And, <laughs> and so when my I was telling my dad that I was reading it, he's like, oh, I want to read it too. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, do you know, like you get why it's titled the way it is. And I was just like, uh, I hadn't thought about it. He was like, well, it's because it's like Latin America is like has open veins like cut veins and like all the blood is just like sprouting like spreading out and it's being taken by this like other thing it's just like that image of like bleeding latin america like for hundreds and hundreds of years Mm -hmm. like was really powerful um so that really stuck stuck with me and then just like on the first page i think it's like page one or or two Mm -hmm. um galliano has this line that has really stayed with me so i'm just gonna read it quickly for everyone else Along the way, we have even lost the right to call ourselves Americans. Although the Haitians and the Cubans appeared in history as new people a century before the Mayflower pilgrims settled on the Plymouth coast. For the world today, America is just the United States. The region we inhabit is a sub-America, a second-class America of nebulous identity. Like, bam. Mm -hmm. That's how the book starts. And so it's just, it's really moving in all its imagery. Yeah, and I liked your point, and you've you've made this point before in other episodes that, like, we call ourselves American without thinking twice about, like, what that implicates about the rest of the Americas and how, I mean, even just in calling ourselves American, we're displacing all of Latin America in in the same way that the U.S. and Europe has literally exploited raw materials from the continent. So I think that that's important to think about, you know, when we call ourselves American, um, what we're doing. Yeah. So (laughs) one of the things that I took away the most was like this difference between like conquistadores and colonization. Mm -hmm. Do you want to get into that a bit? Yeah. So I found this really interesting too. Um, he outlined what he, our, he thinks are key differences between the colonization that happened in the U S and, the conquistadores and their actions in Latin America. So in the U.S., it's like these people who are outlaws, who are religious outcasts, who are migrating to colonizing the U.S. for the purposes of forming a new permanent society with their families. These are families who are moving to the U.S. But in Latin America, it's like conquistadores who are single men, who basically just want to get rich for themselves. Like, they're there, you know, to be, like, the head of an outpost, to be, like, the intermediary between the colony and whatever European country they belong to. But they're there so they can live fat and be rich um, in wherever they settled in Latin America. And he said that that was important because that's just a different relationship to the land and um, resulted in, like kind of the over-exploitation of Latin America in a different way than occurred in the U.S. Uh, that part, I, my favorite part of that was, like, he has this line about, like, any, like, if you just get a group of men together <laughs> anywhere in history, like, it's the most violent, worst results you'll ever see. And I was just like, even Eduardo Galliano knows men are trash. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, our, like, professor had a, had a little moment like that, too, where he was like, if you think about it, it makes sense. Like, if you get a group of men together, only bad things happen. Which is like, oh, go Jim. good job um so we also thought it was important to get into the general economics of colonialism 
because I don't know I'm not sure that it's like really well known like that the specifics of how it happens so do you want to go into this or should I go into it or how should we do it we can we can bounce off each other so this is sickening this is just like uh all of this was so purposeful and with like intent and so yeah what all these other countries did when they got to like Latin America including like all the islands was they'd go they'd find one or two or like a 10 raw materials that they wanted and they would just extract grow extract it grow extract and they'd send it back to their countries and there they used all that to develop their own industries to Mm -hmm. like kick off their industrial revolutions and all of that and then they would like make all these products from these raw materials and then sell it to these other countries for much more expensive because Mm -hmm. now it was like a finished product and this country that got very little for the raw material like now had to pay a lot more for this like finished product that really originated in, in on their land. Yeah. And it's actually in a really sick way, a smart way of keeping your colonies dependent on you because um, they didn't allow for these countries to develop like national economies that had diverse export structures because like a, a country that has like a healthy amount of exports will have a bunch of different exports so like if one if like one season like for whatever reason like the the coffee farms are ruined you have like other things that you can rely on so your economy won't be totally decimated but with these countries like brazil with gold for example if you're if your like sole source of income is exporting gold then um you one don't produce manufacture anything for yourself so like you said you are forced to buy back these products at exorbitant rates just to allow yourself to live yeah and then like not just like the diverse economies not only is that important for like all the reasons you also mentioned but it's also like just like physically that's what the land needs yeah so like yeah not having like these crop rotations means that you're taking out you're making the soil no longer fertile Mm -hmm. and and you can see this still today so like much of latin america like still bears the burdens of all of this colonialism it's not like oh it ended and now it's over like move on no it's still like it's still limiting and constraining latin america it's it's still bleeding latin america because like an example in cuba the soil is no longer fertile and is completely depleted and like streams have dried up and all because of the sugar plane plantations like cuba used to be forest and have all these beautiful trees but then they wanted sugar so they cut them down burn them and planted sugar so all the resources and minerals of that land like se fue like it's gone Mm -hmm. yeah and so when you have an economic situation like this the result is widespread poverty like getting to a point where you have to exploit children but like widespread illiteracy which is basically the current situation in latin america okay so to the next point yvette please tell me explain to me what eduardo galeano (laughs) meant when he said that the spanish owned the cow but others drank the milk like again with these visuals (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was really powerful um so some one i think probably like the thing i found most interesting was that um contrary to what you might think it wasn't just portugal and spain that benefited from this exploitation because they actually had debts to other european countries britain being one of them um and so 
as a result, even though like Spain, for example, was extracting the raw materials or Portugal, um, in the case of Britain, it was actually, um, those who had, who owned the banks that provided the loans to the Spanish that actually ended up reaping a lot of the benefits. And so we can outline that clearly in the case of what happened between Portugal and Britain. So actually the primary beneficiary of the gold in Brazil was Britain, not Portugal, because the English loaned money to the Portuguese. And what they did was they signed a treaty with England in exchange for some advantages, which I assume were like tariffs or something that would have made their exports more profitable, specifically for their wines in the English market. And then in exchange, it opened, Portugal opened its own markets and its colonial markets to English manufacturing. So England was getting all of these really cheap raw materials that then allowed it to invest in innovative manufacturing. And Eduardo Galeano actually argues that this is what spurred the Industrial Revolution in Britain, because they were able, through all of you know what they accumulated in gold from Portugal, from Brazil, really, they were able to um, create the innovative manufacturing that led to their Industrial Revolution. What I thought was really fucked up was that Portugal not only fucked themselves over, but also Brazil, um, because they made it a criminal offense to open new roads in the mining region, and also ordered that their looms, that their looms and spitting needles burned which is disgusting yeah they just they're not the smartest people we've like come to this conclusion so (laughs) many times right uh okay and going to like the fact that they're not the smartest people one of the things that i really liked in galliano's book and it's like i'm gonna give you like an example but literally like this is everywhere like all these contradictions like uh, when we learn the history right or like when they themselves were telling themselves why they were okay treating the indigenous population so poorly and basically enslaving them was like they would compare the indigenous people to like beasts of burden Mm. and then they'd point to be like oh look that indigenous person can carry more weight than the llama so that just proves they are a beast of burden but then they'd like turn around and be anti-semitic at the same time and say like oh, the indigenous are just like the Jews because they are lazy and ungrateful like for all the Span- for all the good the Spanish have done them. So it's just like, oh, like this narrative that they had to tell themselves in order to like be okay doing such like awful dehumanizing things. Like, oh, you're a beast of burden so I can teach- treat you like I treat a llama. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're really lazy and you're so ungrateful for everything we've done for you. Like, we- like you can't have it both ways and that they like, they try to all the time. And the other one that I really liked was, like, we all, we like, let's go in on Britain on this episode. Because, like, <laughs> everybody's always like, oh, yeah, the British, like, they were so anti-slavery. They were, like, the first to come around. Like, yay, Britain. Mm-hmm. Woo. But uh, Galliano argues that Britain only became anti-slavery once it needed those markets with more purchasing power because it had, like, industrialized. It mm-hmm. had all these products that it manufactured and wanted to sell and had no one to sell them to Mm. and then realized like oh if these countries remain poor and like all enslaved they can't they can't buy this from us like and it's just like ugh, yes that makes so much sense (laughs) yeah so even though this book is really amazing and it's still amazing to me one sad thing that occurred was that um, years later, Rodo Galliano said publicly that he lacked the necessary development in political economy at the time to have written the book, and that he found the prose difficult to read. Um, and basically, the media, especially like the right wing media, went wild and said that he disclaimed his whole work, which actually isn't true. Like 
he said what I said just now. Um, he didn't discount the whole work. But Cynthia, you were saying that that makes sense because like in general, it's a trend that people get more conservative yeah. as they get older. Yeah. So not that you necessarily have to get more conservative as you get older, but for me, it's just like older people less like like to take less risks and maybe like become more settled in their ways and more come like don't like or don't have that energy and they're used to like disrupt things so i don't think you necessarily have to get more conservative but if that's what happened to him like it makes sense for me it's like in the line with what i see happen to a lot of people Mm. i mean i feel like we shouldn't be ageist because like there's (laughs) people who are older who are really radical and like um, provide a lot of energy and provide a lot of wisdom to younger people but um, I think there's lots of reasons I mean my hypothesis is that like people get more conservative as they get older because of how intensely we're socialized and I feel like I don't know some people I guess yeah it's kind of related to what you're saying it's like only I don't know they only have so much energy to resist socialization but or I don't know I mean there's just lots of reasons why people change their views you know I I think just because he changed his views it doesn't mean that what he wrote was less valid yeah for sure okay let's end there all right so for our case Nguyen versus INS. What does INS stand for again? Fuck. Immigration Naturalization Service, but that's not what it is anymore. Uh, that's that's right. right. Yeah. So now it's, it's DHS. Everything's under DHS. NCIS or something like that, right? What? No. <laughs> no, there's something else. It's... No. So the, the whole umbrella is the Department of Homeland Security, which happened like that con- conglomeration of immigration and national security happened post 9-11, which I feel like is also like a really important thing to note. Um, in, in terms of how our immigration policy has developed. But yeah, at the time, it was just the Immigration Naturalization Service. Um, and it's like DHS, and then I forget what the other subcompartments are, but that's like ICBP. There's ORR. like NCICS, something like that. The citizenship one that where you apply. Oh, USCIS. There you go. The, yeah, US Citizenship and Immigration Services. Yeah. Yeah, this is like literally what I do. So that's why I know all of these acronyms. Um, so, should we get into the facts? Yeah. In 1969, Twin, Twin, oh god, I hate butchering people's names. Um, Nguyen, is the last name? So, Twan An Nguyen. Nguyen. Okay. Yeah. Was born in Saigon, Vietnam, to Joseph Boulais. Boulay. Boulay. <laughs> god damn. Uh, a U.S. citizen and his mother, a Vietnamese citizen. I don't, uh, I mean, we should always try to pronounce people's names right, but I don't feel too bad because, like, literally <laughs> in the back of my head, all I can hear is someone else who was talking about this case who was saying the name Nijin when it's, like, Nguyen. So, um. Well, that's why I feel bad because I feel <laughs> like I'm that person. <laughs> I kind of am, though. I, I don't know. I would like to think I'd try a little harder than that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> Boulay yes. was in Vietnam under the employment of a corporation. So that's why he was in Vietnam, in case anyone was wondering. We thought that there might be, he might have been a soldier, but. And there are, like, in the case, there is some language about case. Yeah. Like, they're, they are thinking about military men when they're, when this case. So just, he wasn't there because of the military, but keep that in the back of your mind because this, that is related to this case. Yeah. Um, so at six years old, Nguyen became a legal permanent resident and uh at 22 years old he pleaded guilty 
in a Texas state court to two counts of sexual assault on a child and ended up serving jail prison time for that. Um, and then after he had served time in prison, that's when INS began de- deportation proceedings against him. Yeah, so I guess before we get into procedural history, we should explain the law that's behind all of this. So there's this law, it was, or is, I guess, 8 USC section 1409A. And so that law required that a child born abroad and out of wedlock, so like the parents aren't married, acquires at birth the nationality status of a citizen mother, but it doesn't if, if it's just the father who's a citizen. So it's like if, if, uh, if someone is born abroad and their mom is a U.S. citizen, they automatically become a U.S. citizen. But if they're born abroad and it's the dad who's a U.S. citizen, not the mom, they don't get that automatic citizenship. So that's what was happening here. So Nguyen was born in Vietnam to a Vietnamese mother and his father was a U.S. citizen. So even though he came with his father to the U.S. and that's why at six years old he became a legal permanent resident, he didn't get that citizenship because it, under this law, the father has to do three, can do one of three different things which is to like legitimize, legitimate, legitimate, mm-hmm. legitimate, yeah. <laughs> legitimate the child. I don't know what that means, but that's one. I think it's like officially register him with the government as his father. Like, I guess. And the, like the second option is declaration of paternity under oath by father. And the third one is like court order of paternity. So that's why I don't understand what the difference is with the legitimate, but there must be like a third process. Yeah. So unless like the dad does one of those three things, the citizenship isn't passed on to the son and then he needs to do that before the child turns 18 the father needs to do one of those three things before the child turns 18 for the child to be able to be deemed a u.s citizen so that's why Nguyen didn't have citizenship and why ins began deportation proceedings against him because you can't deport a citizen but you can deport a legal permanent resident because this crime was a crime of moral turpitude and a felony mm-hmm. and so i guess quickly i'll just say that um you can tell, I'm just going to assume that the the person who was picked to litigate this case was done strategically because like you, this is like in very, in like multiple ways, the ideal plaintiff to prove why this law was really silly because the justification for the law, like, I mean, we're going to get into this later, but the reason that the state gave for why this law was valid was that they were trying to encourage fathers to have legitimate emotional connections with their children but um in this case um is it when when new year i don't don't know why it's so hard for me i think it's because i've heard so many people mispronounce it um and his father like had a really close relationship like he didn't even he didn't even know who his mother was um and so yeah i just want to say that before we go forward Okay, so basically, this goes up to the Supreme Court, and this is a case that's actually taught in, like, 14th Amendment, like, equal protection, um, due process, whatever, and so, not whatever, but yeah, so that's, that was the issue here, whether this law was, and the statutory distinction between um, a male citizen father and a female citizen mother was consistent with the equal protection guarantee embedded in the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. Wait, 14, right? No, whatever. 
Um, I think the, that, du- the Fifth Amendment also has a due process clause, so I think it's just a question of whether or not it, in this case, is the Fifth Amendment. Oh, yeah, because it's not the state. <clears throat> we're talking about the federal government. Yeah. Fourteenth Amendment is what applies to the states. Thank you. I thought I made a typo. But no, no. no, no, no. Um, okay, so that, was, so that was the question, whether, because it's making a distinction based on sex. Mm-hmm. And the court found that this law is in line with the constitutional guarantees of equal protection. And so... The standard that the court was applying, and we've talked about this a little bit before, is it has to apply heightened scrutiny, which in this case the court found to mean that a gender-based classification withstands equal protection scrutiny if it serves, one, like important governmental objective, and two, the discriminatory means employed are substantially related to the achievement of those objectives. So, like, if the government has, like, a good reason for why it's making this distinction based on sex and the way that it makes that distinction makes sense for that goal, then it's okay. Oh, and just to clarify, because it's gender, this is intermediate scrutiny, not strict scrutiny, which is what we use for a race. Well, uh, O'Connor and, like, the language of O'Connor is saying that the court is supposed to apply heightened scrutiny. So they're not even using the strict scrutiny or intermediate and she says that like because the court doesn't the majority opinion of the court doesn't use that language they just say equal protection scrutiny and the court says that o'connor's dissent says that they were applying they should have applied heightened scrutiny but instead applied rational basis scrutiny so it's very confusing like we were saying with the gender-based classifications for anytime uh, the government passes a law that distinguishes uh, people based on gender it can be challenged under equal protection grounds, but can survive that challenge if it serves some important governmental objective. And the important governmental objective that the state tried to bring here was that it, this law was assuring that a biological parent-child relationship exists. And basically, it was saying that you don't really need to prove that with a mother because the relation is verifiable from the birth itself. And there's just... The the subtext is that mothers always have a relationship to their child because they're supposed to be nurturing. And uh, they said that, like, physically, a father doesn't need to be present at birth. And um, that even if he is present, his presence doesn't automatically verify fatherhood in the same way that a mother's um, motherhood is automatically verified by the birth itself. And so then they said that also that this law was ensuring that the child and the citizen parent have some opportunity to develop a relationship that consists of real everyday ties, (laughs) providing a connection between the child and the citizen parent of the U.S. Um, Which I thought was like a weird, like, I don't see how that's an important governmental objective, but I actually, because I actually think that, that like what you said about the undertone of like, oh, the mother is nurturing and has a relationship. I think that really comes out under the second reason of ensuring that the child and the citizen parent have like that opportunity to develop a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, because under the first reason, like the assuring the biological relationship exists, O'Connor like points out that there's like, and the court has some language that even if you could have, like, a DNA exam to prove paternity, like, that wouldn't be enough. So, like, this first one, like, it's it's there, but it's not, like, they're, they're not, like, this isn't, like, the most important reason. Like, the most important reason that they're really, been, like, hinging on this, based on my interpretation, is, like, the second reason. Like, making sure that the person, this, this, the child forms a relationship with their parents. 
And that's where, like, the stereotype of, like, oh, if you're the mom, you're naturally going to have a relationship with your child no matter what. And if you're the dad, that's not necessarily the case. But, yeah, that's, like, a minor, yeah, that's just my interpretation. I think that the real reason for this law, like, the reason why the INS made this law in the first place is because of, which the court mentions, is the, is, um, the reality of U.S. soldiers abroad um, raping women in the countries that they're invading or just like i mean most of the time it's rape but it's like whatever sometimes it's consensual and so the i think because of xenophobia like and kind of related to the comments that that republican senator was making about a flooding of foreigners coming into the u.s i think there's also those kinds of fears about um granting automatic citizenship to these children who are automatically seen as foreign um, and so they're basically trying to like keep a cap on that by making it so that only kids who have, you know, quote unquote legitimate emotional connections with their fathers can become U.S. citizens. Yeah. And they also like, not only are they worried about military men abroad, uh, they're also, the court mentions like, it's so easy to travel nowadays. Like all these, um, like U.S. citizens went, traveled abroad and it's just like, what are you saying that like, oh, if someone travels abroad and has a child, like <laughs> There's going to be all these children. So, yeah, like, the court is being... The court and Congress is being, like, hella xenophobic and, like, doesn't want to give uh, citizenship to children of U.S. men, basically. Yeah, and I, I think... Um, this is something I've been thinking about for a long time, but if you notice the metaphors that people use for when they talk about immigrants and actually it's like frequently immigrants from latin america they use imagery related to a flood and i think that's just important to note because oftentimes these fears are exaggerated like there's we're not going to be overwhelmed by people trying to come to the u.s for reasons that i was saying earlier yeah so going a little bit more into the descent by o'connor oh wait first oh go ahead i think it's also important just to know this might be why they applied the scrutiny level that they did. Because I do know that for sure, gender cases are looked at with intermediate scrutiny. <laughs> all she, all O'Connor's language is heightened scrutiny. I think, I think because she always argues, or she used to argue that gender should be strict scrutiny. Well, she says it's based on the precedent. Oh, well, so, but like, was this, was this before the cases that, I know that, okay, okay. So that they might not have ruled that decision at this point which is why she's arguing that it should be heightened scrutiny but i know for sure that now in 2017 gender cases are looked at with intermediate scrutiny i don't know we haven't gotten there in class yet (laughs) um okay so but also relevant to the court's holding was that they wanted to defer to congress and the executive on matters of immigration which is like that's how they generally approach immigration cases it's like they try not to get too in the weeds because they don't want to be seen as making immigration policy from the bench because because of the way that responsibilities have been delegated immigration is squarely within the power of congress and president they can basically do whatever they want which is another reason why they would hesitate to change a law like this yeah and o'connor says that's like the main reason why they do their analysis the way they do because she says like oh the court the majority opinion does say like we don't have to answer whether this gets into like congress's power regarding things of due to immigration so they are automatically say like we're not going to get into that we're this decision has nothing to do with that they don't want to decide that Mm -hmm. but and so connor says it's you're being guided by that and that's why you're not applying the 
scrutiny that you should be applying based on all of our other cases Mm. because she says the way we should be making this decision and the way like the language of governmental objectives that are important and like the means that are like appropriate for getting to those goals she says that the way that we're supposed to do that analysis the supreme court did it backwards like the state and the government supposed to provide what those objectives are instead the supreme court was just like being like this is what we think they are and this is what and they are important and it doesn't do any of the analysis of make, of where the burden is and so mm-hmm. that's why o'connor has issues with it and why she dissents along with like three other judges justices and so i guess more generally why we wanted to talk about this case is that it's important to recognize the differences in protection even between a legal permanent resident and a citizen um, a lot of people don't know that like my grandparents included it took them a while to become citizens because they were just like uh we're already legal permanent residents like what's the issue but i'm glad that they did gain citizenship because um if you commit a crime crimes certain crimes of moral turpitude or felonies then you can be placed under deportation proceedings um so if yeah so the reason and so this is also just generally important because more and more we're seeing the confluence of the the criminal injustice system and immigration and because deportation isn't labeled as a crime under precedent it's said that it's a civil penalty not a criminal one which is obviously (laughs) a lie not true like who in their right mind would ever think that deportation is not punishment Um, for that reason a person can receive double punishment for committing the same crime which in all other criminal contexts is not true like once you receive punishment for one crime you can't then be punished for that same crime again that's double jeopardy but that doesn't apply in the case of deportation Uh, is there anything else you want to say no okay cool we were discussing the case uh cynthia and i had this whole back and forth about whether or not gender is when there's a gender classification issue whether or not the court needs to use strict scrutiny or heightened scrutiny and we looked it up and when a gender classification is at issue intermediate scrutiny does need to be applied and that was this intermediate scrutiny is the standard that we read out which just to say it again because i know these things are really confusing but um a gender-based classification will withstand equal protection scrutiny if this is a standard it serves an important governmental objective and the discriminatory means employed are substantially related to the achievement of those objectives um just wanted to like say that because i don't know we just don't want to misinform people and then also um like we are going to keep the back and forth in the episode because like that just shows how confusing these concepts are and like even people who have been in law school for two or three years are still grappling with these questions so okay i feel like we haven't done recommendations in a really long time so this feels weird but (laughs) recommendations i guess like i'll start oh my elbow just snapped um, so I want to recommend Andrew Day. She is a singer. She's really good. I'm sure many of y'all already know about her. I didn't until earlier this week when my friend Shelby, shout out to Shelby, uh, was over here and she had me play her and I absolutely love her. 
So she's from San Diego, California. She was very popular on YouTube before she got like signed and had her first studio album, which was released in 2015. And um, this is how someone from NPR described her. And I think it's really, really accurate. So she has Eartha Kitt's Unflappable Confidence, Amy, Winehouse, Amy Winehouse's Effortless Grasp of Classic Jazz, Billie Holiday's access to raw emotion and Adele's range and pop sensibility. And that's just, she's just really, really good. It's so, I'll post, go to cerebronas.com and I'll post something by her in our blog. Damn, she's very talented. And so I wanted to recommend a book um, by Mumia Abu Jamal, who's a political prisoner. And he wrote Have Black Lives Ever Mattered? And it's a short little book. It's like a series of essays that are all really powerful because it's written in very plain language, as in just like very straightforward. But it's I think that's probably one of the things that makes it most powerful because he just really clearly articulates the ways in which um the U.S. has engaged in state violence and state repression of black communities since forever, since the founding of the U.S., um, and it's, has a really awesome critical analysis of the police state and how it's functioned against black folks, black communities, um, which is really important. And then it's published by AK Press, which is generally a really good publishing company that has published um, a lot of books that have really moved me politically and kind of gotten me to the place where I'm at. So I recommend both that book and then just checking out other stuff from AK Press as well. Excellent. <laughs> well, Yvette. Oh, wait, we should talk about the podcast. Oh, today. yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, okay, so last thing, last thing. Is... We are so all over the place today. I'm sorry. I've had like three hours of sleep. <laughs> I just took a test. It's just like I can't even believe I like went and did this and like thought more for more hours <laughs> about the law. Um but we wanted to mention again that I'm going to be in LA on November 19th at the Podcasterio Fest at LA's Plaza de la Cultura y Arte, um, the first Latinx podcast festival. There's going to be lots of other really cool people there. And please, please come out because I'm really, I'm nervous about it. And I just, <laughs> I want support. So please come out if you can. Okay, on that note. On that note. <laughs> Yvette, have a safe drive back to the East Bay while I stay here. Thank you. Okay. Bye, Bye. everyone. Bye. Bye.